Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise in settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement consulting. Without further delay, here is another episode of Trial Lawyer View with Brian Breider. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, the podcast that brings you inside the world of litigation and the fascinating stories behind some of the most significant trial lawyers in the country. Today, my guest is Brian Breiter. Brian's a nationally recognized trial lawyer with an outstanding track record of securing seven-figure verdicts and settlements. Brian's commitment to helping consumers during their most challenging times has earned him a well-deserved reputation as a formidable advocate. With over 28 years of experience in plaintiff's personal injury law, Brian's expertise extends to a wide range of practice areas, including wrongful death, med mal, and premises liability. What sets Brian apart, and I want to talk about that a lot today, is his unique background as a litigator. He, um, excuse me, a unique background as a professional actor, which he skillfully employs as a litigator, uh, which allows him to tell his client's stories with unparalleled impact. Nominated for Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Consumer Attorney Association of Los Angeles, he's a lifetime fellow of ABOTA and has been named to National Trial Lawyers Top 100. He's also been named nine consecutive years by Southern California and Southern South Florida as a super lawyer. Uh, today, I'm, I'm super excited to delve into Brian's remarkable journey, exploring the strategies and insights that have propelled his success. Uh, with an unwavering dedication to justice, Brian's a, a stellar example of the good that trial lawyers do for society. Also joining us is Joseph Limbaugh. He and Brian co-created Improv for Trial Law, which teaches improv- improvisational theater techniques, which I think I need some help with, uh, for trial lawyers. Joseph teaches improv theater techniques to lawyers and also teaches professionally at the New York Film Academy in Los Angeles. You may have also seen him on TV with various appearances on shows such as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Scrubs, That 70s Show, among many other shows you've undoubtedly seen. Guys, I want to welcome you guys to Trial Lawyer Review. Thrilled to have you both join me today. So appreciate you taking the time to, to be here with me. Wow, Jason, I I really appreciate that that intro. I don't know if I can live up to it. Joseph, what do you think? Uh, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty, pretty big deal. I do no longer teach at the New York Film Academy, though, so we do we need to update that on the website. Yeah, that's, that's the second time that that's happened. Uh, but you but, did yeah. work there. I did okay. work there. I, yeah, I taught there for several years. So we'll, we'll uh, correct yeah. it. He he, in the past taught at the New York Film Academy. I don't want to get you into any legal trouble. That's the last thing that I want to do. Yeah, here. please. Yeah. Please. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited uh, to be here. Uh, Joseph and I love talking about improv for trial, and I love talking about law practice in general and litigation. And uh, let's do it. Well, I, I think that this episode is going to be incredibly uh, insightful for 
listeners who have never heard about that that concept and idea and and I want to definitely dive into it but first I, Brian you've got over 100 million in verdicts and settlements um through your firm what drives your passion for seeking justice on behalf of injured individuals and their families well that's a it's a great question i you know i i think just at an early age when i realized i was going to be a trial lawyer that I wanted to win for the right reason, which was helping people. And and I I quickly learned, uh, you know, from some of my mentors how these cases, these injuries change our clients' lives forever and that the justice that we try to, you know, obtain for them can help put them back on the right track and and, and help change their lives for the better moving forward. So, you know, at the end of these cases, no matter how much money we get for our clients, they're, they're still left with these injuries, issues, you know, and problems for the rest of their lives. So just knowing that we've done something to make that better and to fix problems that shouldn't happen again in the future, you know, I think that's part of the the goal we're trying to obtain. Well said, I, being an injury victim, I've got a pretty unique perspective on that. I was hit by a car while cycling back in 2016 and um, pretty close to dying from being struck. And, you know, that experience opened my eyes to what our clients deal with. And, you know, I'd been doing this for 20 plus years at the time of that, but you, you really don't understand it until you've been through it. And, I took that experience and uh, I'm getting ready to publish my second book, which is kind of a guide for people that have been in an accident dealing with some of the issues that my area of expertise is, which is government benefits and preservation of those, how to you know, ultimately manage the recovery financially and as well as dealing with liens and, and those sorts of issues so clients have a better understanding of what to expect when they settle a case. But that idea, you know, ultimately that trial lawyers do, um, you know, an amazing thing for injury victims, which is, is give them a voice because, you know, that that's ultimately all we have in this system to redress when something like that happens. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the messenger, your lawyer is critically important. I mean, Joseph was a victim as well. And we could talk about this later about how improv for trial, you know, helps lawyers, but I guess he had a bad experience with a, with his lawyer and made him realize that not all lawyers are the same. Yeah, I heard Joseph. I heard you talk about that. It it's interesting. What what was it that your lawyer didn't advocate as forcefully as you would have liked, or you just felt like your story was not ultimately told the way you would have liked? I mean, both of those things. But yes, essentially, they just kind of showed up and were they literally were just a placeholder for a person didn't really do anything proactively. And, you know, uh, really, I mean, if they would have at least tried to do a bit more, that would have helped, but they, they didn't really do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, I, ex- you expect someone who's going to be an advocate for you to actually advocate. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and so that's, you know, part of what we do, uh, at my firm, especially is really connect with the client early and find out what their story is, who they are, so that we can, you know, represent them around the person that they are. Not every 
case is the same. Not every client is the same from, you know, day one, uh, an injury or an accident affects client A differently than client B and the ripple effect it has on the rest of their family, et cetera. So learning that story and just understanding how to tell a story as a, as a litigator, as someone that presents cases to juries is so critically important. It's a skill that, you know, it's it's one that you need to develop and it takes years and years of practice to do that. And I think, you know, our approach, our uh, theater approach is, is something that really works. It's kind of interesting when, when you guys were talking about this in another podcast, when I was doing my research and preparation for this, it made me think of what an advantage I had in my case, because even though I had a lawyer who, who represented me fantastically and, you know, was a personal friend, so knew me, I also was able to talk directly to the adjuster um, at mediation and tell my story and say, you know, do you really want to put a, a lawyer on the stand that can explain exactly in excruciating detail what it feels like to have your bone in your face broken and your jaw wired shut and not be able to eat properly for two years? You know, do you really want to put me on the stand or, or do you want to get this resolved today? <laughs> Which, you know, and, you know. <laughs> and that, that's fascinating because, well, our clients aren't all lawyers and they are right. great at articulating their own story. And that's where, you know, a team around them that can help develop that. And then, of course, you know, we teach these techniques to our clients and telling the story together. So that's that's critical. Yeah, that, that idea of story, that, that's what just really brought that to my mind was I, I, you know, I'm different because I am a lawyer. So I knew how to articulate that. But for most clients and even a lot of lawyers, as you point out, you know, that that's something that ultimately you really have to be able to develop to, you know, represent your clients the right way. So, Brian, you 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 grew up in Florida, lived in Miami Beach, which we talked about a little bit before we got on the podcast podcast and from doing the research um for this episode i know that you had a, a a sibling who was a drama teacher playwright who threw you up on stage at an early age um you went to uf undergrad both my daughters i told you are are, are gators um and nova for law school how did all of that background push you towards a career as a, a trial lawyer well to be perfectly frank i was met i was a um you know, pre-med initially. And then when I went into one of my like biochem classes and my professor who was German, I couldn't understand anything he was saying because he had such a thick accent. I said, I'm going to fail this class. So I took an English class and a criminology class. And I said, this is for me. And I realized that I was a storyteller and that I was fascinated by the law. And that's when I got really interested in it. When I went to law school and started doing improvisational theater training and, and started realizing the, you know, how the two came together so beautifully, that's that's when, uh, you know, this idea of performing in front of an audience in a courtroom kind of came together. And so ultimately, that's how you you wound up in a, in Los Angeles because of the acting and improv theater. And so you, you took that and you've developed this incredibly successful practice what what is different about how you built your firm? Well, you know, first of all, it, it it took finding the right pieces, the right attorneys for you know the firm. Uh, all of us here have a sense of humor. 
All of us here understand that failure is part of success, not being afraid to fail. All of the lawyers here have embraced the idea of using improvisational theater. Joseph has been training us, you know, as a firm uh, for years. And so just finding attorneys that are on board with this idea of storytelling, instead of just going the traditional way of telling the client's story in a linear way or, you know, not using these techniques that we use was really important. And everybody has embraced it. And I think it's been working beautifully. So if a, a lawyer, young lawyers listening to this podcast and wanted to build their firm with that kind of model, how how would you suggest that they go about doing that? Well, first of all, you, you need the training. So I think that every attorney, every person should have some kind of improvisational theater training. Even, you know, you don't have to do it because you want to be an actor, just the way to communicate. And Joseph, what it, just as someone who was coming at this from a non-lawyer perspective, and then your introduction to teaching lawyers, what do you think? I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me. Like as soon as we started doing it, it, it made sense why I, I felt like I, I knew why I'd learned these skills, you know, because I can pass them on to people who can really use them. But I, I do. One of the things I say to all my classes is learning these improv skills makes you a better human being. And that sounds like hyperbole, but it it's true. It helps you to connect with people on a deeper level. It, it gives you emotional intelligence, essentially. And we can all have more of that. We can all be better at that, you know. After all, I mean, our clients are coming to us broken, afraid, gone through a trauma, don't know where to go. You know, the law and knowledge of the law is great and understanding how insurance works is fantastic. But if you can't connect with that person on a very basic human level and really understand who they are and where they're coming from, I, I don't know how you can represent them in these, you know, seven, eight figure cases that we do. I mean, this is everything to them. This is their their whole life. And just treating them as a client versus someone that you are really connected to is incredibly important. So these skills, learning that at an early level, level in your career is critically important. I think doctors need to learn this. Just from their bedside manner alone, you know, I've met some doctors who are brilliant and just have no ability to connect with, with a, with a person. And, and I've uh, tried to teach them and I have actually, in some cases taught experts, these skills helps them in their presentation at trial and deposition. And I think just on their one-on-one level with their, with their patients, but just understanding that improvisation is a language. It's a secret language that once you learn it, you can communicate on a different level with people. Really. It's interesting. The, the idea of story though, we, we use it here internally to make sure that our team really understands the importance of what they do and how what they do translates into a positive impact in the life of an injury victim. So when we, you know, are, meeting each month we do mission moments so everybody understands the the impact of that because that story can help connect them to their work which in turn produces meaning for them in what they do each day so that that idea is such um 
an important one, but it seems like it's it's often overlooked in in business, in law, in medicine, just that we're we're dealing with, you know, people's lives each yeah, day. Yeah, I mean I mean, look, there's no secret. Young lawyers, they gotta pay the bills. They wanna get cases in, they wanna get them out. But at some point you're gonna get some significant case, a big case, a meaningful case, a life-changing case to the person and potentially to you and your law firm. And if you're not prepared, if you're not able, if you don't have the skills to 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 tell this story in a in front of a jury in a one, two month long trial or even a five day trial, you're doing a disservice to your client. So you need to, you know, start training outside of just the knowledge of the law and learn how to tell these stories. And if you can't or, or you don't feel entirely confident to do it, bring somebody in that can help you with it. I mean, that's what Joseph and I do is we, you know, we teach these skills, we help focus group the cases, we help develop the themes for lawyers for their cases, because that's incredibly important is developing the theme of the story on how to tell it. And then, you know, a lot of times law firms just bring us in to co-counsel the case with them. So they learn, you know, firsthand how to do it. And Joseph has been coming to my trials watching the voir dire, watching the jury, especially, and, you know, watching the interaction with the judge. Joseph, what were your experiences with the last two trials we did in the last couple of months? I just, it's like you stand out because you have a greater connection to who you're talking to. Like you can see the empathy and the listening. I can see you paying attention to, you know, what the jury's doing, what the judge is doing on a deeper level, whereas the other person oftentimes is planning ahead. They're not in the current moment, you know? Um, I also just want to point out, everybody uses that word story, you know, and I feel like it's a, it's very difficult to understand what a story is, like, because, we, you know, we work in Hollywood and a lot of, there's a lot of stories produced here. And even people who are professional story producers don't, like, it's very difficult to define the term story. You know, like, what is a story? I, I think it's hard to say exactly what that is. And I think the better question is, what is a compelling story? because that is a question that's easier to answer. And then you can kind of get into the nitty gritty of like, you know what your client's story is, but how are you going to tell that story? So it's compelling, you know, so it's effective. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, we are telling stories in very different environments than you would typically tell a story. Okay. If I'm telling you a story, a personal story, that's very different than if I'm sitting in front of 12 strangers with a potentially angry judge with stuff that's going on in the news over a three-day trial, over a 10-day trial, over a month-long trial. I mean, telling that story over different time periods, it's a very difficult skill to master. Telling us a, a two-week story is very different than telling a two-day story. You know, and so just learning those beats, those uh, we call them, you know, to some degree tilting on when to introduce information, when to introduce big information to jurors, when they're ready for it. And so just, you know, young lawyers or or lawyers that have been doing this for a really long time and are set in the way they're doing it, it, it doesn't always work if you just try to shoehorn in a case into a story structure that you're used to telling. 
being in the moment and and telling the story based on the information that's coming in towards you at the time is critical. That's really, it's really powerful to be able to do that. So, uh, Joseph, you, you talked about improv being the art of connection. And so I, I wanted to ask before we, we dive into uh, improv at trial, how did you and Brian meet and how have you developed your connection to where it, it is what it is today, which is this um, partnership that delivers uh, uh, an interesting way of, of going about trials? Well, I mean, I'm, I met Brian at a theater. We were both doing shows together and, and I directed him in a bunch of shows, but I feel very fortunate to have a connection with Brian. You know, I, I, I love improv and I love storytelling and uh, I love teaching it. I love, I love the performance of it, but being able to, you know, have a, a positive impact on the world in a more empirical way is, is great. And that's, that's when I, when I, I'm teaching a lawyer and I can see their eyes, you know, that moment of realization of like, oh, this is going to help me win a case and know that I'm literally helping, you know, your clients, like you said, you know, making a positive good in the world is great. And so Brian, you know, gives me that opportunity. And also we speak the same language. Like we both have been talking about this a long time. We, we, you know, we brainstorm, we, you know, we're working on a book together. So it's, it, to me, it, it gives me a deeper understanding of all the things that I've learned as well. It's, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. And I'm so fortunate to have Joseph, uh, you know, teaching this class together with me, you know, Joseph really is the improv teacher. And although I've been doing improv for over 30 years, uh, I, I, you know, rely on Joseph to teach the fundamental improv skill at that moment. What I do is I take that skill and show the lawyers, how do we incorporate these games, these methods that we're learning into trial? How do I use, you know, because we play games. Uh, that's what improv is, is playing games. And I am constantly using these games that we're learning into presenting our cases at trial. So Joseph and I are teaching this class together. He's teaching the, you know, ABCs and I'm teaching, you know, the color commentary, if you will, <laughs> on how to incorporate these these theories, these techniques into the courtroom or deposition or signing up a client, those types of things. And so I've been really fortunate. Also, by doing these classes, by teaching with Joseph, it is keeping my improv muscle like super toned and in shape because you could take an improv class once and have a very basic understanding of what it is. But if you're not constantly doing it, that, that knowledge, that muscle atrophies and, you know, it becomes useless. It's like going and listening to a lecture of, you know, somebody like Brian Panish who talks about how he won a $50 million case. You're never going to be able to use his life experience and knowledge to do that on your own. I mean, he's been doing it for so long, et cetera. You have to use these skills and keep using them and developing them to really understand how they apply in the courtroom and find your own voice in telling those stories using these techniques. So how did your relationship evolve to the point where you said, oh, let's develop improv for trial? And Ultimately, what is the why for trial lawyers to go through this kind of training? You kind of danced around some things, but I think for, for trial lawyers to understand exactly why 
this type of training would be incredibly important, which by the way, I love the tagline that all the world is a stage and so is the courtroom. So <laughs> a, a plus for whoever did, did, did that uh, handy work. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was, and Shakespeare, but uh, you know, look, first of all, I'm, I'm a huge Joseph Limbaugh fan. He was a director uh, of mine and really helped me understand. We could talk about this in a little bit about status. Uh, and I was a, when you understand the language, you're talking about a high status performer. And he challenged me to approach my performance from the opposite direction and, and approach things in a way that I was very uncomfortable and scared of doing. And once he taught me how to do that, it changed the my range, if you will. And I've used that's when I started to realize, hey, Joseph, you know what? Not thank you for doing this. It's making me a better performer in in our shows we're doing, but this will work in trial. And let's start, you know, doing this, putting our heads together and developing this for teaching lawyers how to do this. And so I mean, that's how we started creating this idea was, you know, I would see Joseph every week at shows and then I'd be off doing a trial. And then we ended up doing an improvised trial uh, show at the uh, at the theater. And I started to realize, oh, this is this is meant to be. And so that that's when we started developing the the program many years ago. Yeah, I mean, if you think, you know, I've taught a lot of lawyers. If you think of all of the, all of the, all the stuff it takes to become a lawyer, it's an it's an incredible achievement, and I I'm amazed with everybody that you know that I've worked with to to the the training you have to go through, the terminology you have to learn, the complexity of it. Like it's very difficult. But in all of that, if you draw like a Venn diagram of, you know, these are all the things you need to be a lawyer. Communication is not really necessarily emphasized. You know, the 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 essential steps of communication, looking in someone's eyes when you talk to them, you know, receiving information from them while you're talking, you know, if, even if you're giving a closing statement to a jury, that's, that's a conversation. It's not a monologue. Like you need to see what you're saying is having an impact on the people you're talking to. Is it you know? working? Are they rejecting it? Are they accepting it? Are the head nods or shakes, you know, driving your information in a different direction? Just being in tune, you know, jury selection is my favorite part of the case. And a lot of what we teach is driven towards, you know, voir dire. And, you know, I believe that's where you win the case or lose it because you pick the wrong jury, uh, you're toast. And so understanding who the jury is for this case, for this particular client, makes a huge difference and just knowing how to you know weave the themes in early with those jurors and we call dropping breadcrumbs along the way leading a trail that you want these jurors to find and then you know continually going back to those breadcrumbs to remind jurors why they're here why we're here and why we need each other in this case and, and those are things that, you know, we've developed together. So do you think that the, the and I asked a compound question, so, but is the why file lawyers should go through this training, is it about the connection or is it about the storytelling? What, what, what do you think is the, if you had to say, the single most important thing that 
going through this training would develop for a trial lawyer, what would that be? Well, I'll let Joseph start uh, from the from the improv perspective, and then I'll weave into why these things make you a better trial lawyer. I mean, I think it's the connection is is the is the easiest thing to take away from it, and it's the thing we all, can all get better at. You know, it's the being being able to connect with other human beings and really listen to them. Um, and status is a lot of that. You know, being empathic and understanding where they're coming from. And then the storytelling is like the greater aspect, but that's a more difficult thing to teach. Like it takes longer to learn storytelling and to learn how to compose a story. And I think we take it for granted that, you know, that, oh, we we all know what a good story is. We're all, you know, we all must be good storytellers. But I, I think being able to digest a story is not the same as being able to compose a story. And being able to, to compose a story that is compelling is a is a challenging skill to learn. Um, but it is, it is, it's the foundation of it is that connection. That is how you get to a point where you can tell, like all of this stuff kind of builds up like a pyramid. So the storytelling is kind of, I guess, the cherry on top, you know, okay. that's, that's, yeah. So I will tell you a, a real world story of how this applies. So I had a lawyer bring me a case two weeks before the trial, and he told me, you know, what the case was about. And, it was, and I said, well, what's the case about? He goes, well, our client was poisoned, you know, by a, Terminex when they sprayed some chemicals on him and he lost his smell and taste forever. And I'm like, okay, that's, that sounds interesting, but what's it about? And he goes, well, that's, it's a, that's what it's about. I said, well, I need to meet the client. I need to meet the client. The trial's in two weeks. I don't know anything about this person's story. I sat down with the client and in 20 minutes of just connecting and talking about nothing about the case. I learned who this person was. I learned that he grew up with a grandma who was a cordon bleu chef. I learned that at an early age, he had a fascination and an encyclopedic knowledge of sense, smell and, uh, and perfumes and just deep understanding of the way things smelled and taste that he developed a uh, a line of bath bombs that were about to be launched about fragrance and and tying them to like memories and experiences that he had traveled the world you know learning about different foods and cultures that's who this client was that I learned very quickly about his connection with people and memories that he had from food from you know odor and scents that he had developed over the years and that was taken away that's what makes the story compelling yes he was poisoned by this big corporation who was negligent but it's the person who it happened to and their story on how it affected their life for those years and what it will do for the rest of his life. That was the most important thing. And just understanding the connection with the person, hearing the information, instead of just telling the story about what the defendant did and what they took away, it's meaningless if you don't have this person's history and story and understanding the way to tell it to the audience. And by the way, you have to pick the right audience for this kind of case that will be, you know, compelled by by the information and picking the jury in that case was really basing it on the audience that's willing to listen to this 
person's story? Will they will they hear and care about what his story is? And so just having a, an understanding of what that was. And I didn't have a lot of time to learn about it. So I spent, you know, a lot of time just learning who this person was. And, you know, my co-counsel was talking about what the defendant did. So that's what he handled in the case when I focused on, you know, how they changed our client's life by telling that story was powerful. And it was all, you know, using these improvisational techniques. So, Brian, how do you think improv prepared you personally for being a trial lawyer? What was it about developing that skill set that got you think about thinking about infusing it into your trial practice? Well, I said it earlier, which is not being afraid of failure or not being afraid of making a mistake. Most lawyers are terrified about misspeaking or making a mistake in front of the jury. That's why they use notes. They use them as a crutch because they have it all planned out and they feel afraid. They have stage fright. They develop like flop sweat. They're focused on just these questions and they're missing everything else around them. And I learned early mistakes are gifts. Mistakes are gifts. And I'll let Joseph explain why. Yeah, improv on its face is a risky activity. We know that. You're performing without a script. It's terrifying to most people. I've I've worked with big name actors that will not improvise. They won't do it. They're terrified of it. Right. But that is the benefit of it. The thing that is scary about it is the benefit of it. It's like the extreme sports of theater. Okay. You know that there's a, an opportunity for failure there. And that's what makes it interesting. But it also allows you to develop skills to deal with curveballs and things in the moment that you, you can't anticipate or plan. And so that skill set is something that a lot, of, a lot of lawyers just do not have. They want to confine what's happening in the courtroom into their little box but it's impossible. Things will happen outside of that box. You have to adapt to those things. You have to. And when you're able to do that, the jury sees it and they're impressed. Wow. How did they get around that? Oh, that was a, that was a mistake. I thought you were going to crash and burn. Meanwhile, you took that opportunity and made it one of the best moments of the trial. And that's what 99% of lawyers are terrified of. And that, for me, is the thing I look forward to the most. <laughs> Go ahead and give me a curveball. Joseph, when you saw me doing that closing argument and how often the judge and the defense attorney kept objecting and trying to throw me off, and it became a game almost. Like, go ahead. Keep throwing them at me. Like playing dodgeball, and the jury is mystified and loved watching you know how we're able to avoid these landmines and it made it your closing more compelling because of the way you adapted and reacted to what was happening they were trying to throw you off but it just made what you did better you know yeah. so just understanding that failure is important that you need to embrace it at times and taking mistakes and making them look like this is something you wanted almost really can make the story compelling. And that's what makes people laugh, which is important during a trial too. Understanding the use of comedy and when to employ it, even in the most serious case, because, you know, 
using comedy is a pressure valve release. You know, we're talking about these tragedies and these awful things, and it's really hard to to have that kind of energy going on for two weeks. If you don't have some, you know, release in there, some comedy a little bit. And, and also that kind of gives people hope as well, that you could see some, you know, levity in 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 these situations. Otherwise, what, what good is the money? If everything is, you know, pain, suffering and horribleness, you know, some, there has to be some levity available. And I think improv teaches you to understand the timing of it when it's right. You know, timing is everything. Joseph. Yeah, we talked about a story being compelling and it's like a tragic story will not be compelling if there aren't moments of levity in it. That It needs that as a counterbalance for the audience to be able to digest and incorporate the tragedy. Like the, the pain must be balanced with, with levity. Otherwise it, it it's meaningless. You know? And the opposite applies as well. Joseph tells a great uh, story about uh, professional uh stand-up comedians and what they do during their sets and and you'll notice it when he tells you the story go ahead if you ever watch a professional stand-up who does like an hour-long set there's always about halfway through they'll have a moment where it's like all right now we're going to get serious and it's not generally funny they'll really talk to the audience because they know that an audience can't physically laugh for an hour straight you need to have that moment to kind of reset everybody so you can get back to the laughs. It's that that is the thing people misunderstand that it's like we're not telling you to go and yuck it up in the courtroom. We're saying that you have to have moments of levity so that you can tell these difficult stories, you know. It's a balance. Yeah. I mean Shakespeare was a genius at it. He would have tragedy and have very funny moments in it and then in his comedies he would have very serious moments. It just it gives the audience a break from the emotional investment that they're making and allows them to, you know, shift because it can be exhausting crying the whole time or laughing the whole time. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to ask, and I, I think I've gotten a sense uh, uh, of the answer now, but, you know, Brian, with your professional background in acting and how that sets you apart in the courtroom, the, the top three unique skills from improv that you use to successfully advocate for your clients and, and convey their story. So it sounds like at least two of those would be adaptivity because cases never go the way you think they're going to go and be able, being able to, to react on the fly and demonstrate to the jury your command of the case. And then two, this idea of timing, being able to make sure that you're timing the sequencing of what you're trying to get across to the jury. Is there a third? Well, or, I, I or is that the top? Well, part I think of the what top? you just, I think what you just said is, is really one thing right there, which is really listening and being in the moment, listening and being in the moment incorporates both of the things you just said. Okay. Cause that's timing and, and, you know, being able to adapt is based on, really understanding and listening to the information that's coming in at that moment without just talking about what's going on without hearing, you know, what else is being said in the room? Cause it is, even if you're giving a closing argument, it is a conversation and you need to be listening and observing because observing is listening to, to everything that's going on. The other two things, if you're asking for the top three, so listening really active listening in the moment. 
The other two are, and I'll let Joseph talk about these two very big concepts, are status. Okay, and we could spend weeks talking about status. And the other one is called tilting. And so if you want to talk about these two very big ideas, we can, because those three things are really what I use and what Joseph and I teach together in presenting cases to juries. So status is one, this is a Keith Johnstone term and, and when improvisers use status, they're talking about something specific. So it's because that word means something to you already, right? Um, it's just like discovery means something to lawyers. Status means something to improvisers that is not what you would normally think of it. And what it means is it's just our behavior. It's how you hold your body, how you speak, your physicality. Um, and we're all kind of giving these signals to each other. It's like a secret language we're talking to each other all the time about it's really a dominance and submission, but those terms are very loaded. So Keith Johnstone came up with these terms, high status and low status, you know, and the basic kind of broad strokes are if you're high status, you take up more space, you maintain eye contact when you're talking to people, you will, uh, in, you might invade other people's space, you'll move slower, um, and uh, you might hold your head still when you're talking, which is really high status and creepy. I'm doing it right now. So those are all high status. Low status is the opposite of that. So you might be a little more fidgety, a little bit clumsy. You'll take up less space. You want to make eye contact. But you can't really maintain it. Um, and yeah, you. You. but, but when people first learn these terms, they think they immediately understand them and they kind of put it into those boxes. But the truth is it's very complicated because humans are very complicated. And we're somewhere on this spectrum in there and, and we're always moving around. It's not like we're stuck in one place. Uh, that being said, most of us learn uh, um, several strategies uh, on one end of the spectrum when we're young and we stick to those strategies and we never change. And that might be effective for us in life, but ultimately I think that it is healthier and, and we'll have more connections with people and we'll be more effective if we can spread our range out and learn more of these strategies. Um, both in recognizing them in other people and in being able to employ them ourselves. That's kind of the, that is the nutshell of, of status right there, but it's, yeah. it's a big concept. Yeah. That's literally like the tip of the tip of the iceberg of status. But that's what I was kind of talking about earlier, where I would approach thing as kind of a high status approach. And then Joseph helped me approach things, communicating with people using low status or just shifting between high and low and connecting with people, re recognizing what the other person's status is that you're talking to and connecting with them so that you are talking to them in a way where they feel connected to you. Because again, status has nothing to do with your position or your job or how much money you have. It's, beha it's behavioral. It's understanding people's behavior and and if you approach someone who your behavior can turn them off or frighten them or reject them it's it's difficult for you to connect with them so just understanding your own status how others perceive you even if you perceive yourself differently and and then seeing other people's status where they are how to approach them and in a group also, when, you have, when you're dealing with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, it's very different when I'm dealing with that same person in front of 50 other people. It's a very heady concept. We spend weeks talking about this concept, this idea, but understanding it and developing 
techniques to communicate with others using this idea of status is probably the most important thing for me. The next thing is tilting, which is another very big concept that we teach. <laughs> and I'll let Joseph kind of give you the introduction to it. So tilting is, I, I mentioned Keith Johnstone earlier and he passed away this year. I'm very fortunate as well to have worked with her, him personally quite a bit. Um, and his holy grail was to try to, to find a way to teach improvisers to tell compelling stories. That was something he was always trying to look for. And, and what is a compelling story? And that question is a very difficult question to answer. And it's kind of different for all of us. But one of his answers was, was this idea of tilting. And it's kind of a fundamental component to all stories that we find compelling. And it's basically, we expect a story uh, to be about someone being altered or changed in a significant way. Um, you know, if, if I tell you that, uh, we're going to go see a movie where there's a professional wrestler, an ex-professional wrestler becomes the bodyguard of a spoiled rich kid, right? If I just say that, you know, everything that's going to happen in that movie. I mean, you already know what's going to happen. You know, that the, the kid is going to dump oatmeal on his head. He's going to be like, Oh, you little brat. But you know, at the end of that, he's going to be hugging that little kid. He's going to go, I love you, little dude. You know, you know that, right? You, you it, so those moments of change, those tilts are are you know, those are we know that those make up a good story. So being aware of that allows you to tell a more compelling story. Yeah, and it's again that goes back into timing. When is the right time to introduce that information that tilts the scene? That it's like, hey. We're dropping a boulder into a pond, big information that's going to have huge ripple effect. You can't keep dropping bombs one after another, or the jury will miss the impact of each one. It's just like your story, Jason, when you were hit by this car and you smashed your face and your jaw was wired shut. You don't want to give all of that dumping, all of that information at once, because they need to know first who you were before, what you were able to do before, what your life was like before. And then when you start introducing these trauma or torturing the hero, how each bit of torture or information changed your life. And then, okay, great. You were able to recover from this injury, but then this happened and set you back. And then you were fighting to recover from this one. And then you had this setback. And, and how it affected your relationship with your kids and how it affected your job and your wife and your finances. Just finding the right moments to tilt that information, drop that information in at the right time when the audience is ready for it, when they're ready to receive it, the way you say it, the way you say it to this person versus the way you say it to this person, using status, listening, being in the moment, tilting the information. These are weaving these three big improv techniques together. So you're asking, what are the three big ones? I think listening, being connected, understanding status, and understanding the tilt, when to introduce the information. Yeah, and I think those are all ways of connecting. You know, I, I call improv the art of connecting, but all three of those are different ways of connecting with people. Yeah, that's the way I interpreted all of that was that really it's it's about knowing your audience and connecting with them so that ultimately they're receptive to what you're saying. Yeah, they, and they hear you. 
and and these are all based on you know games and techniques that we learn and teach and you start playing them and you start get becoming an expert at doing these games outside of the courtroom and then you realize oh i can use what i'm learning you know doing this training and use this to tell really compelling stories because again you want to have those tears from your witness be real so that the tears from the jurors are earned because there's a connection and an empathy and a reason for them to care because at the end of this story jason who's writing the ending who writes the ending to these stories the jury that's right and so you want all 12 of them or nine out of 12 or six out of six in florida where i also practice you want them all writing the same ending you know they're all have to agree when they go back into the jury room they're like okay what's the end of this story zero or 10 million or whatever it is and why are we writing this ending what did these lawyers do with this client to to give us the ending to this story what did they do to allow us to justify this ending because i think generally they want to help jurors want to do the right thing but if you're not arming them with the reasons why and the internal like feeling to go against things that maybe at their core they're against you might get some shitty jurors <laughs> but you're saying like i know like in my heart i'm kind of like against doing this but in this case with this story i feel right that this is the right thing to do and i've had some jurors that initially my co-counsel was like do not pick this person i'm like i think this this story will resonate with this person because of what I learned in jury selection from them and my connections with them, how they responded to the things I was saying, how I responded to them, how they were dealing with other jurors. You know, all of that is kind of those con big concepts that we were talking about earlier. And the other side's often going to miss that because they're seeing the jurors just as a list of attributes. They don't see them as a person. I mean, yeah. they don't have time and they haven't learned these skills. Yeah, exactly. They're they're thinking about, you know, broad, oh, I don't want to have, you know, this you know, minority person from a, a, a socioeconomic background. In this case, I'm going to get rid of them. When in fact, actually, that could have been a great juror for them had they really paid attention to what they were saying. Or, oh, yeah, this conservative, you know, 50-year-old white guy is going to be great for us for the defense. Not in this case. Not with the connections and the things that I saw here. I'm going to keep this person. Really? They they don't get it because they're not like in the moment connecting with these people. I can't say I'm 100% right every time. I've lost cases. Sure. But, uh, but I think the reason why we've been getting these really big verdicts on cases that people think are worth, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. We're getting seven figure verdicts is because the story is so compelling that they can justify doing what we're asking them to do. And that they're saying, yes, in this case, it makes sense. In other cases, no way. I would never do it. But for these people, yeah, I'll do it. And they and they do. Brian, I, I heard you talk about using a, uh, a game show theme in closing argument. And it really intrigued me because you said it turned out to be an $8 million verdict on a case where they had made a, a top offer of 50 grand. That just, wow, like 
can you explain how you used your improv skills to pull that one off? Yeah. So that was the case I was talking about earlier, the Terminex case where the guy was poisoned and lost his smell and taste. And I was, I remember I was sleeping a couple days before the closing and I was like, how am I going to present this ridiculous defense argument to the jury to expose them, to show how crazy it is? And I said, well, I'm going to make a farce. Like I woke up like in a sweat and I, and all I could think of was like that Saturday night live jeopardy parody that they do that the, the, the contestants and the answers were so ridiculous that no one would ever believe it. And so I said, okay, I'm going to incorporate that theme because their defense is so ridiculous. It's so out there. And I made it into a farce and I presented it as a game show being like you, the studio audience, the jury get to decide if these defendants and their experts were lying to you or telling the truth. And the name of the game show was tell the truth. And it just exposed them by using comedy in this very serious situation to show how laughable their defense was. And I, you know, I did a game show for like 25 minutes. I really was so committed to it. And then immediately after I said, that was ridiculous. And the jury was nodding. They're like, yes, it is ridiculous. So I acknowledged my, you know, that display about how ridiculous it was. And they immediately bought it. Once I saw the heads nodding, I said, I got this. They bought into this and everything else I'm going to tell them now, they're going to understand we're delivering it with sincerity and based on evidence and the ever, everything else was such ridiculous baloney. You can't believe anything they're telling. And then they were able to, in our case, justify an $8 million verdict because it made sense under the circumstances. That case ended up getting taken away from us, by the way. Judge took away the verdict. We appealed it. We got the verdict back. They went to his California Supreme Court. It was rejected. And they ended up taking that $8 million verdict and paid us $11.3 million. So we just got a uh, final resolution to that on the three-year you know, anniversary of the case. So you know that was using that moment. That jury was ready for that kind of presentation. You know, I, I was like, I, I don't know that I could do that in every case. I mean, Joseph was there when I did a puppet show uh in front of a jury and i knew they were ready for it because i had kind of warmed them up to this idea that i was going to present to them uh because i was reading the room and just being like is this jury ready for it because if i did that in front of like just any jury i don't think i could get away with it so it's just understanding you know when to take these types of risks yeah it's not a formula like that underpinned exactly that case, because the defense's arguments were so ridiculous, was the perfect thing to do in that case. Right. A lot of this is is all bespoke to the case itself, you know, and the circumstances. So um, that that makes me curious, you know, if, if there was another case where you would say it was your most challenging case that you've handled and how you've been able to deploy these kinds of techniques to get a favorable outcome for your client. 
was actually one that we just did recently where Joseph was there watching that one as well. So our client was a profoundly autistic young man who had no ability to speak, to communicate, maybe a couple words. So, you know, he couldn't talk about what happened to him and his harm, his injury, his emotional distress. He couldn't communicate it. And his mother only spoke Spanish. But she spoke his language. His name was Johanny. So the mom spoke Johanny. She spoke his language. So what the challenge was getting the mom to be able to communicate what her son had gone through without the ability to use words to describe because he had no language like we're accustomed to hearing. So I had two layers of communication or translation, Johanny to mom, and then mom in Spanish to a jury. And so, and, and a judge who wasn't going to ever allow her to say, when he would do this, I know that meant blank. So it was just super challenging for us to communicate his harms and losses in that case. And, and I, you know, tried to do it in some very creative ways. We got a good verdict on the case. It wasn't as big as I would have liked because the injury wasn't, the physical injury wasn't that bad. But, you know, we got essentially 10 times what was offered by uh, the defense. But uh, but that was a, a tough one, really just communicate, learning how to communicate without words. And that's something that we teach, actually, which we J Joseph could talk about. It's by using gibberish to communicate. Joseph, why don't you go ahead and uh, use well, we are One of the first exercises that we do early in the class is we get everybody speaking gibberish, which is just a made-up language. And it, most people are surprised by how much they're able to communicate, especially lawyers who rely so much on words. And they're, they're so facile with them and they love to use them. But you take that away from them and a lot of them have a bit of panic but most of them, you know, find it to be very freeing because we spend so much energy, like considering, oh, I've got to say something intelligent. I've got to say something funny or important, but you take all of that away. And now I can just express myself physically and with emotion. And it's, it, it can be, you know, relieving for some people. Other people I, find it stressful. I know. I, I actually relied big time on that in that case with the autistic kid, because there were no words to communicate. We had to express through, you know, Emotional outbursts, physical manifestations, the the way he would move to communicate the pain, the emotional harm he was going through. And just from the mom explaining to the jury, I know what's going on inside him based on small things that people would never realize and overlook. And so it worked. Uh, it was hard to do. And the judge afterward, uh, you know, he was a very tough judge. Uh, he complimented me and says, I'd never seen a lawyer be able to communicate without a client who was able to communicate at all their pain and suffering in any way, shape or form with a parent who wasn't allowed to kind of insert their own opinions as to what was going on. So it was it was. I don't want to call it a game, but I use this kind of lack of words from my client to as a challenge to explain to the jury what was going on, what how this impacted the person.
Yeah, watching her in the witness stand was like watching someone trying to tune in a radio with like a ton of static. And the thing you were trying to listen to on the radio was very complicated. Like it was just, you would kind of get the information, you know, but it was, yeah, it was, it was tricky. Yeah. And we were using um, an interpreter at the time, which makes that, again, even tougher to connect with the jury. Yeah. So many layers. That's uh, very interesting challenge to try and overcome. And probably most lawyers would would really struggle with that. But with your kind of background and training, perhaps that that skill set is one. I mean, it, it seems to get back to that idea of being able to no matter what the case throws at you, being able to handle it. Believe me, I was freaking out before the trial because I was like, how am I going to do this? Yeah. How am I going to do this? What's it? Because the judge kept taking my tools away from me. And I couldn't put the witness on. I couldn't put the kid on the stand, you know, and I had to like get the jury ready for, can you listen to a story without words? You know, we're going to present evidence to you, maybe with no words. Can you be open to that will you be receptive to that so trying to get them ready to like watch this movie with no subtitles in a foreign language basically that's what it was and so you know thankfully we had some really bright jurors on there that were able to to get the big concepts of it because some unfortunately were like i don't get it you know so it wasn't a unanimous verdict so we know that some people just weren't understanding the information we again we won because we had people that we were able to use as vessels to communicate. And so before we wrap up, you guys have been really generous with your time. I, I wanted to ask you about something that caught my eye when I was doing the research. And it was, um, Brian, you have having taught a course in improvisational mediation to fellow lawyers and mediators. What is that? And do you actually incorporate that into your own practice and use it to your client's advantage these days? Yeah. Uh, so originally, when we first started teaching this class, I taught it with a, a very well-known mediator at Pepperdine University named Jeff Crivis, who understood improvisation. And Joseph actually used to co-teach and be a guest teacher with us. So this was really started for mediation. Because in mediation, Nothing goes according to plan. And the mediator has to bounce from room to room and talk to two very different audiences, right? They're not speaking in front of everybody at the same time. Mediator's going from one room to the other room. And just really status was huge for the mediators to understand. Like you're talking to, you know, the head of a of an insurance company in one room. And in the other room, you're talking to, you know, this very unsophisticated family whose father was killed and and the dynamics of the lawyers going on. So mediators really, I thought, were fantastic people to first teach this to. Then I started to realize, oh, wait a second, this is this is really even more powerful to use in the courtroom. But yes, we started with teaching mediators because, you know, the old star approach to mediation was, you know, go in and bracketing and getting numbers and passing it back and forth. That's really not what it's about. It's, it's connecting with the people so that you, when the mediator, you have to have trust in the mediator to reveal information and to listen to the information that's coming back in the room. And so the mediators that we taught over the years, 15 years later, tell me now, Brian, when you and Joseph and, and Jeff taught that course, to me as a very new mediator, 
it was groundbreaking for me because I never would have approached cases like this. And it's really helped me like rescue cases in the past. I mean, Joseph, what about that class we taught to those probate lawyers who are not That's trial right. lawyers with the two brothers? I mean, tell tell Jason that story. Well, yeah, you know, you talk about improv as the art of connection, um, but the probate lawyers really latched onto the idea of status because they deal with families, you know, and and the you know the consequences of of that. And there's so many fraught status relationships in in your family. You know, the relationship you have with your family is very different than the relationship you'll have when you go out to the world. You know, you can be the biggest, most influential lawyer in the world, and you go back to your family, and they'll be like, "Well, what are you going to do? You know." And eat gravy on that or whatever, you know, like they don't see you the same way. So those relationships don't really change. But there were these two brothers who were in contesting over, you know, a, um, uh, a uh, inheritance and it wouldn't it wasn't getting resolved. And it all kind of boiled down to um, one of them had pushed the other one off a boat when he was six years old. Like that was the root of it. And when they found that out, they were able to then resolve it. But you think about that tiny nugget of something from the past becoming, you know, so huge later on, it's the, all this stuff is interweaved, you know, into our lives. It's it's all about being a human being, really. Yeah. And the point of that story is that, you know, a mediator, a probate attorney, a trial lawyer, just learning about the human story, the what makes the person tick, that tilt in their life that, you know, is a big identifier for them and when to use that information at the right time because once the lawyers realized that that really was the impasse to getting this big estate resolved they were able to use that you know tilt or take the boulder out of that small pond and and resolve it just learning how to get to the information what information is important really listening those are the themes you see that we keep coming back to those and and those are the things we we really focus on when we're teaching this and when I'm, you know, presenting a case to a jury. There are a few more questions as we wrap up. Uh, next one, I, I always ask us um, is for you, Brian, and it's a bit self-serving, uh, but in, what are the most difficult issues that you face today when you settle a case? Is it dealing with Medicare compliance? Is it dealing with keeping people eligible for government benefits as it leans, you know, all the things that we, we kind of see as the challenges and we work with trial lawyers to help them kind of avoid the pitfalls with all those things. Well, the answer to that is synergy is who I go to for those issues. I mean, that's how we know each other is because I, I use your company, you know, yes. You, you know, when the case settles, the real negotiation begins, you know, because you've settled the case, now you have all these things to deal with. Like you said, uh, setting up a conservatorship, setting up a special needs trust, dealing with Medicare liens, dealing with ERISA liens that are huge things that, you know, as trial lawyers, those are things that make our heads go spinning and crazy. And we rely on, you know, companies like like yours to take care of that for us. And, uh, and I think also improv is incredible an incredibly important skill for people that are in that world as well. Just learning how to communicate with like government agencies and people that are just literally used to going by a script, but getting them off that message and, and approaching them differently 
I think allows you guys to be successful. I know Brandon Khan is, you know, a big part of your organization took the improv class with, with us. And I think that opened his eyes to be like, Hey, this is, this is something different. We can use this with what we do. That's awesome. I didn't know that he had done it. Actually, I, I, it sounds pretty intriguing. I, I think I, I'm going to have to uh, do it. I, I still practice a bit. I'm not in front of juries. I, I do. I handle Medicaid lien cases in front of the Division of Administrative Hearings here in Florida because we've got this kind of crazy setup for Medicaid liens that's specific to Florida. But, you know, so ultimately I still, you know, have to employ skills to tell the story because it's one thing I always do in, in the cases, make sure that the injury victim is there at the hearing tells the judge kind of what happened to them. And just so there's some human element to this, that it's not just about the numbers. It's, it's about this person and this Medicaid recipients, the impact of all this on their life. It's, it's learning the story of who the person is so that when the people who are writing the end of the story, it's like, Oh, this is going to have an impact on that person sitting right there looking at me. I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, So last question. And uh, Brian, this is open-ended for you to talk about whatever you want. Uh, But since the podcast is trial lawyer view, what is your view as a trial lawyer? Again, look, I, I think that when people call us, number one, they're intimidated to having to call a lawyer. The first thing I hear people say is, oh, you know, I've never called a lawyer before. Or I'm not the kind of person that sues. You know, they're already feeling like I don't want to be talking to you. So understanding that, you know, the clients that are coming to you are, you know, afraid or worried or inexperienced and learning how to make them feel at ease. Because, again, they're giving you their most important thing, which is their life and future for you to be able to, you know, care for them and make sure that you're protecting them moving forward. And again, you know, again, I've been doing this 30 years. I have a great team around me. So I know that any case that comes in, we can handle. But there are, you know, attorneys out there that may not have the skills. I think it's important to know, A, you need, we can all get better. And number two, if you don't feel like you've got a handle on your case, reach out and find out how you can, you know, get some help and make the story better co-counsel we love you know when law firms bring us in i get brought in days weeks months before trials to you know help these cases get better and i think we've been doing a good job uh at at joining forces with other firms to to elevate their case to elevate their story and to help them develop their themes and also just you know the training that joseph and i do we do classes live here in los angeles Firms hire us. Uh, Daryl Isaacs just brought Joseph and I out to Kentucky to teach his team of trial lawyers. We taught at the Panish Trial College, the Rex Paris Trial College, Axe Law with Boris Trezone, his group have brought us in. You know, these law firms that are wildly successful bring us in because they know that, hey, this is something we don't have in our toolbox. We can learn from it. Let's bring these guys in. You know, we teach also on Zoom as well. We do weekly classes there or boot camps. And I just think that improv for trial is something that every lawyer to some degree has to learn something about. And we love teaching it. 
So if a lawyer is listening to this and wants to do the class improv for trial, what what are the options for doing that? Yeah. So and Joseph can jump in too. go to our website, improv for trial, following follow us on our social media improv for trial, um, pick up the phone and call us. We could set up a class for individuals, for a law firm. You know, law, law firms hire us because it helps them learn the sequel language together. You know, and if you're going to trial with Joe or Mary from your firm, you know, you, you want them all speaking the same language when you're going in there. So firms bring us in or individual attorneys and we'll match them up in classes with other lawyers. It's great networking. So, you know, calling me on my cell phone which is there on uh, on our website or sending us an email, getting on our newsletter. Yeah, you can respond to the newsletter and we will get that email. You can just respond to it as well. Yeah. And reaching out to us and, you know, if you just want us to focus group your trial, because at my office here in LA, we have a courtroom and the courtroom transforms into a theater as well, where we teach classes. So, We'll teach improv classes there. We'll have focus groups as well where we will do improvised trials. Your case, like Jason, if you have a case you want to come in and present it to a real jury, we'll do that with you. And then we'll throw in improvisational situations to see what if this happened during your trial? How would you react? What would happen if your witness was limited in this way? How would you deal with it? So that when you do go into the trial and something like that happens, you're like, wow, thank God I prepared for that. You know, this curveball that came at me, I'm prepared. I'm able to maneuver in these, you know, situations because you don't know who your judge is going to be. At least in California, when you get assigned a judge, you might not find out that judge until the day of the trial or the jurisdiction. And that, you know, changes your audience and how you approach the case. So those are things we offer. Um, you know, and also just partnering up with law firms and jumping in on their cases and doing it with them. Right. If um, someone wants to co-counsel a case or, or work with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. Send me an email at brian at lawbrider.com, brian at lawbrider, or call me on my cell phone, 323-353-8834. And, you know, last year alone, I tried three cases in Florida and seven cases in California. So 10 trials in one year, which is not atypical for us. And so those are cases that I was brought in to try in Florida. Actually, one of them, two of them were our organic cases. One was I was brought in and a few here uh, in California were we were brought in at the last moment to try the case for the lawyers here in California. Well, thank you to Joseph and Brian for joining me on today's episode, and we'll see everybody on the next episode of Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and encourage you to tune in to our next episode for more helpful insights about your practice. This podcast is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Visit SynergySettlements.com to learn more about how we allow trial lawyers to focus on what they do best.